You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So busy listening to Black Star yeah. on the way over here. Oh, what? And I'm just like, nope, not that one. Not that one. <laughs> not that song either. The next one. Uh, no, this is not the right one. It's it's a great album. I just wasn't. It wasn't right for that moment. It's a fantastic album, but yeah, to re- listen to Black Star right before you record, it's like it's too much perspective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like the the it's like in Spinal Tap when they're all sitting in front of Elvis Presley's graves, like really puts things into perspective. Right? It's like oh, too much perspective. <laughs> <laughs> My mother left me. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. We've had so much debauchery and fun this series, haven't we? I know. It's it's and it's all ending, right? It hasn't even <laughs> just begun. So after the recording of Raw Power, Iggy went to Los Angeles happy, healthy, and optimistic. At least relatively so. And he pretty much just left the rest of the Stooges back in London, where James Williamson had a brief affair with Angie Bowie. Eventually, all the Stooges were moved by main man to a five-bedroom house off Mulholland Drive out in L.A. because Iggy's only requirement for their L.A. digs was that they had to have access to a pool at all times. A pool of what? (laughs) Just a swimming pool. You have to be specific. And they couldn't get an apartment complex because, of course, all the noise from, you know, them being rock musicians and all that, that wouldn't work. So they ended up renting them an entire house. But even after they got the pool, Iggy kept passing out in the water, which meant that the main man VP, Lee Childers, had to jump in to keep Iggy from drowning, like, a handful of times, more than once. Which is funny because he was so healthy in the beginning. They even called him a Californian Brian Jones. <laughs> The irony in that is unbelievable. <laughs> Thankfully, we did not have a second Brian Jones. <laughs> yes. Well, Lee Childers, he was vice president of Main Man. Uh-huh. Also learned how to swim, as we know. <laughs> you didn't know how to swim before he had to save Iggy from drowning? No, no. <laughs> and he came up, as you know from before, he came up with the Andy Warhol scene kids. Mm-hmm. And Lee Childers' job, basically, as VP, 
was to babysit Iggy. Like constant, like what kind of babysitting? Was it just sitting next to him? It's just kind of making sure he doesn't like shoot up. Making sure he doesn't put anything in his mouth. Or anything. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Make sure he goes to bed. I mean, it didn't really work though. Of course not. Well, Iggy was not acting any better out in public. One of the Stooges' favorite hangouts in Los Angeles was Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco. It just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) I'd imagine they called it Rodney's. Rodney's yeah probably going out to Rodney's tonight which Rodney's it sounds from what I've read like an absolutely fucking awful place that was open for the sole purpose of gathering the meanest teenage female rockers in Los Angeles and putting them all in one location at least now you know where not to go (laughs) (laughs) and these are all young glam rock girls young like 15 16 17 they're definitely I mean they are teenager teenagers a sea of glitter (laughs) hot pants platform shoes as far as the eye could see but even though the people at Bingenheimer's Disco sound awful because Joan Jett remembered people actually stepping over a dead body that was out front so they could get inside of Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco the music oh that was Bernie Lomax (laughs) he's fine (laughs) the music was fucking great because this was the height of glam Speaking of Joan Jett, this was not just people going out night after night just to be seen. Some of these teenage girls hanging out at Rodney's ended up starting bands of their own. Bands like Joan Jett's first group, The Runaways. I love the Runaways. Oh, the Runaways are so fucking good. Well, you know, they were actually formed. They did not actually get together. They were actually, there were some auditions, too. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like the Spice Girls. (laughs) (laughs) But better. Much, much better. And that song that you just heard, Neon Angels on the Road to Ruin, that was from their Live in Japan album, which is fucking great. It's one of the best live records of that fucking decade. I have it. 
Yeah, you did. I I got it for you. I got yeah. a, I got it for you as a present when Thank I was out you. on the road. You're welcome because I know what you love the Runaways. <laughs> <laughs> but there were other musicians growing up in Rodney's besides just the Runaways. Rodney's was also a regular hangout for Kid Congo, who would also be one of the founding members of the Gun Club, who's fucking amazing. And he was a guitarist for the Cramps before playing with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on both the Good Son and Tender Prey. <laughs> It sounds like the devil. Oh, man, no one knows how to do the devil like Nick Cave. (laughs) (laughs) From what I've read, Iggy Pop was seen during this time as a tragic figure in the glam scene. Iggy would go to Rodney's and just stare into the mirrors, coiling and uncoiling himself like a snake. Just, I'm Iggy. I'm Iggy. You should watch Joker. <laughs> or Iggy would stand outside in a dress, exposing himself while the owner, Rodney Bingenheimer, just sat and cried. <laughs> <laughs> My penis will never be that big. <laughs> well, he didn't want Iggy to get arrested, you know. Oh, he was yeah, like, to yeah, shut down the club. Yeah, shut down the club. Or, But he also had an affection for Iggy because as bad as Iggy could be, like people still had affection for him. Like the Stooges were really important to the evolution of glam. You know, like it definitely goes upon that same route of decadence and, you know, and taking things way too fucking far. So <laughs> Rodney, you know, he had an affection for him. He didn't want Iggy to be thrown in jail again. That's the thing, is that Iggy was at what might have been the height of his shit behavior during this time. Because of all the heroin, Iggy was paranoid and cruel, and his mood swings made him an absolute fucking horror to be around. Yeah, that's because of the drugs. I mean, one minute he'd be like Mr. Nice Guy, and in the next minute he'd be a total asshole. Yeah. Kind of like Dirk Diggler in the beginning of Boogie Nights, <laughs> and, Dirk Diggler, and Dirk Diggler at the end of Boogie Nights. I'm ready to fuck! I'm ready to fuck! <laughs> But with this new place on Torson Drive, you know, the place, the house that you were talking about with a with a pool, mm-hmm. uh, they brought in a lot of groupie junkies and they were shooting up at the pool. Uh, like There was glass in the pool. I mean, that was a major infraction, I would say. <laughs> That's the number one rule. No glass in the pool. 
<laughs> rumors of robberies and abortions. And the whole time, Iggy was just living it up with the rest of the Stooges because Tony DeFreeze did not let them tour. You know, Tony was so focused on David Bowie's tour, so the Stooges were just being ignored. Yeah. And they, well, I mean, they did play one gig in England that we talked about. And then they come back to LA because Iggy is pretty much following them back to LA. <laughs> and the band tried to keep it going. Like, they tried to rehearse as much as they could. But after a while, they just got tired and they're like, fuck it, let's just hang by the pool. Yeah. Well, after one show in Detroit that the Stooges managed to play, Iggy pushed away a fan who tried to give him a hug, and the girl damn near went down a whole flight of stairs. That's because the girl ran out to him and said, Hey, Iggy, you look good. Give me a hug. And she frightened him. (laughs) (laughs) Not her fault. (laughs) Not her fault at all. But but you don't jump at Iggy. No. (laughs) You don't stir up a drug addict. (laughs) But... Iggy still managed to be Iggy when it came time to promote Raw Power. Yeah, Iggy got booked at a radio show, uh, WABX in the afternoon. WABX in the afternoon, drive time. <laughs> <laughs> and he went there to preview the new, his new album. And after a couple of songs, Iggy decides just for fun to pull down his pants. Mm-hmm. He just gets naked and he starts dancing around with his penis flopping around. <laughs> He's just like, I play with my balls. <laughs> They're live on the air. Yeah, from what I heard, they could actually you could actually hear on the air Iggy's dick like flapping up against his fucking stomach. He's a drummer. <laughs> he was just keeping in time. And the DJ couldn't help but laugh. Everyone's giggling. It was just a fun time for everyone. And it, this is what Iggy said about it. He said, I thought it could help. Help what? I don't know. <laughs> but everyone at the station got in trouble. Oh, the FCC come down on them? They were pretty much threatening to shut them down. Oh, man. FCC does not fuck around. When I was in college radio, the FCC was the constant boogeyman. One of the uh, a higher up executive staffs over at a KTXD 88.1 FM Lubbock. Uh, they put up an article that covered a college radio station, I think in Michigan, that had played a kid rock song called Yodeling in the Valley. Uh, it was about eating pussy, uh, and they got shut the fuck down. We all lived in fear of the FCC. Oh, well, you know that song. <laughs> but hey, we're here on podcast now, so you don't got to worry about none of that bullshit. <laughs> So, because of all this bad behavior, the Stooges were starting to rub Tony DeFreeze at Main Man the wrong way. Problem was, Bowie wasn't around to calm things down because Bowie was touring Japan. Bowie had just moved on from Ziggy Stardust to Aladdin Sane. Small Flashback blazers and ate all your razors while pulling the waders. Talking about Monroe and walking on Snow White. New York's a go-go and everything tastes nice. Poor little greenie. Get back on. Gene Genie lives on his back. Since Bowie didn't have time to deal with Iggy, 
Bowie told DeFreeze to use his own discretion when it came to taming the Stooges. And Tony DeFreeze blamed James Williamson. Everyone he, did. <laughs> everyone blamed James Williamson. Tony DeFreeze just kind of took everyone else's cue. Where they're telling him, like he's asking, what the fuck's going on here? What's the problem? And everyone's like, James, it's James. Just get rid of James and everything will be fine. And that's the thing is that James was actually the most put together stooge outside of Ron Ashton. It's just like you said in the last episode, just nobody liked James. So, DeFreeze told Iggy that either Williamson went or the whole band was going to get dropped from main man. And Iggy's probably thinking, hmm, what should I do? <laughs> I should do the right thing by my friends. What is the... Uh, or main man's got a pool. Oh, yeah, pool of what? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Iggy just got rid of James Williamson because Iggy was not loyal at this time to fucking anybody. And when the Stooges kicked Williamson out of the house, they didn't even let him take his guitars. And within weeks, if not days, James Williamson went from playing lead guitar in one of the best rock bands in history to running a projector at a fucking porno theater. He's just living his best Travis Bickle life. <laughs> <laughs> that had to be the biggest fucking bummer. Like, such a gigantic bummer. Like, you're one minute you're at the pool, you're hanging out, you're going to Rodney Bingenheimer's English disco, and the next you're showing fucking Deep Throat on the Sunset Strip. Not to shit on those amazing theater porn projectionists. <laughs> what you guys do is very important. It was very important to the formation of America at the time. You were the bedrock of this country. But even with James gone, the Stooges were devolving into nothing more than just pure fucking criminals. I mean, there were a lot of rumors of robberies uh, perpetrated by the Stooges. Like they had turned into a, a weird little druggy street gang. In other words, the charm of the Detroit bad boys sort of wore off. And when Lee Childers told the Stooges they were being dropped altogether and the main man house was no longer available, they just kind of shrugged and left. Like they it, knew it was coming. They Oh, yeah, no, they were definitely going to push it as far as they possibly fucking could. But they probably also weren't thinking past tomorrow or even past this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> what followed was a total breakdown on Iggy's part. With no main man, Iggy had no money to buy heroin, but that doesn't mean that he got clean. Instead, he took whatever was free or cheap, mostly quaaludes. Oh, disco biscuits. <laughs> That's what they called them. Uh, really? Disco yeah. biscuits. I always wondered what the, I always heard disco biscuits, but I never knew that's what they actually called quaaludes. It's the ludes. <laughs> well, Iggy, he was what they called a, a trash can drug user, where he'd just take whatever the fuck people gave him, and he didn't really care. He just wanted to get fucked up. And when Raw Power was released under the name Iggy and the Stooges, because remember the deal with Columbia was with just Iggy Pop, Columbia didn't really give a shit because the Stooges didn't have a management company to help with the push. The Stooges did try one show with a new guitarist named Tornado Turner, but the show was uninspired, to say the least. So Iggy swallowed his pride and asked James Williamson to come back. And James said, I guess. I don't know. I got a, you know, there's this movie called Emmanuel. I got a show at 5.15 and then again at 7.45. But, uh, yeah, after that, sure. And for James's first show back, the Stooges did three nights at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Los Angeles.
I don't know what I just heard. <laughs> it was a recording from uh, one of the Stooges' uh, shows at Whiskey A Go Go during this run. That was one of the uh, unreleased tracks uh, oh, from yeah. the Stooges, She Creatures of the Hollywood Hills. Uh, it's kind of, it's it's up there with you know all of the other songs that they were working on at the time that would have been on the fourth Stooges record, but just never quite made it. Right, yeah. That no, that show was when uh, Iggy wore his bikini briefs, mm-hmm. and uh, he was fondled by the girls in the audience. Uh, yeah, because you know he liked to run around in the audience, of course. And when he was on stage, he just like dry humped the microphone stand for fifteen minutes, <laughs> not even singing or anything. He just did that for fifteen minutes. Well, I mean, when, if you listen to the full track of She Creatures of Hollywood Hills, it's an almost ten minute long song, and there's. It's a lot of instrumentals, so that might be one of those the moments where the, <laughs> the, the the mating ritual, yes. And uh, he, yeah, he left a lot of people confused, and then ended up just passing out backstage. Yeah, I mean that happened quite a bit during Little that time. Little guy tired himself out. <laughs> but following that run, the Stooges stage show began. I mean, I guess you, you could just call this fucking unbridled lunacy. I mean, one show in St. Clair Lake in Michigan, uh, Iggy wore only knee-high boots, and again, the bikini briefs, and kicked off the performance by throwing a fucking watermelon into the crowd, uh, which concussed an audience member. It hit someone in the head. They got a concussion. And they just dragged the person off of the floor, kept the show going. Then a few songs later, Iggy went behind the amps, took a shit on the stage and then he picked up his turds and started throwing them at the audience i am so unfazed now (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why that's so funny it's really funny oh (laughs) (laughs) if i was standing like further and if i got pelted with turds i mean i'd be real mad yeah but if i was standing near the back and watching other people getting pelted by turds be one of the best shows i'd ever seen in my fucking life i'd tell that story every thanksgiving and christmas yeah But the Stooges could also still put on top-notch, legendary performances as they did during their 1973 four-night run at Max's Kansas City in New York. Oh, yeah. Everyone turned up for that show. You know, Danny Fields, Alice Cooper, Lenny Kay, Lou Reed, the New York Dolls. Todd Rundgren. Ooh, we'll get Todd Rundgren here in a bit. And like you said, they played new songs written during rehearsals in L.A., like Head On, Open Up and Bleed, Cock in My Pocket, and Heavy Liquid. Actually, yeah, let's listen to one of those. Let's listen to uh, Cock in My Pocket, recorded during uh, what came to be known as the Heavy Liquid Sessions. Straight to the point. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, it's, it's hard to say what would have come of those songs. I mean, it, when you listen to them now, like, they're fine. Like, there's a couple of real, like, Open Up and Bleed is a fantastic fucking song. Yeah. We'll talk about that one more later. Uh, but a lot of the others, like, it's, you wonder if they would have gotten some serious studio time and got some serious production behind them if Cock in My Pocket would have evolved into something better into something a little more impressive and something not quite so uh i guess juvenile might be the word to, to say to about the stooges <laughs> uh, but you know it's like we were talking about in uh, i think episode two when we were um discussing funhouse you know mm-hmm. how see that cat eventually became tvi you know how these songs like the stooges like any other band like songs evolve over time and you know the stooges fourth album it might have been fourth studio album at least if it would have been released in the 70s it might have been an absolute fucking classic or it might have just been yeah that's fine yeah yeah (laughs) but they were still but but the live performances during this time were fucking incredible oh yeah like uh at the maxis kansas shows uh iggy walked on the tables while he was singing and you know obviously eventually the tables gave way naturally and he fell on a bunch of glasses (laughs) he said like you know those heavy margarita glasses yeah i fell on that and he got up and blood was pouring out of his chest he just kept singing anyways yeah and somehow he figured out if he kept moving his left arm backwards more blood would just spurt out (laughs) so he's like I better not do that anymore. <laughs> and they actually even tried to stop the show. They're like, Iggy, Iggy, you can, you can, you can finish now. It's fine. It's totally fine. And he's like, No, I need to finish my set. And he did. And then Alice Cooper makes his way backstage and says, Please go to the hospital. Because <laughs> despite what you may think about Alice Cooper from a stage show, Alice Cooper is among the most reasonable men in rock music. Absolutely. <laughs> to which Iggy Pop is like. Fine. <laughs> and they finally talked Iggy into going to the hospital to get stitched up. And then he went back out and drank with everyone else <sighs> that night. <laughs> I know. And then afterwards, at the end of the night, Steve Harris, who uh, he worked at Columbia at the time, mm-hmm. he offered to give Iggy Pop a, a ride home. And Iggy's like, cool. And then he ha- still has blood all over him. He's bandaged up. He's in the back of the cab. They finally get to the place where he's staying at. And he just looks at Steve Harris. He's like, you want to come up for a drink, man? <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and and this show, uh, the Maxis Kansas shows, this is uh, one of Scott Thurston's first gigs with the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the new keyboardist they had to replace, uh, Bob Chef, because Bob kept loaning money to the Stooges. <laughs> and, but he, he started to realize that he was never going to get the money back after no. a while. <laughs> so he asked for a ride to the airport and never saw them again. <laughs> <laughs> Got to cut your lot. Like, yeah, this is sunk cost when it comes happen. to the Stooges. It's just like, yeah, no, I'm not going to get that back. I'm just going to go. <laughs> it's Scott Thurston. You know, he had to get used to the idea of how the Stooges like ran things, like like which pr- pretty much means borrowing instruments from other bands, mm-hmm. stealing rental equipment, and uh, sneaking out of the back door of hotels to not pay the bills. Yep. And Scott was thinking, ah, this is the life, man. This is <laughs> this is really it. And Scott Thurston was a hell of a fucking keyboardist and a hell of a harmonica player as well as we'll uh, see here uh, later on in the episode but it was around this time that the people who had been watching the Stooges come in and out of New York City throughout the early 70s were starting their own bands the most notable of which was the New York Dolls yeah I love the New York Dolls it's like
are so talented and so pretty. <laughs> They're very pretty. The entirety of the night. You think David Johansson is pretty? Yeah. <laughs> wow. He's hot, hot, hot. <laughs> You know, I didn't actually realize it uh, until we started doing this uh, series. You know, I've been a fan of the New York Dolls, of course, for years and years and years. But I didn't realize just how much influence Iggy Pop had as a vocalist on David Johansson, especially on Personality Crisis. Yeah. I mean, it's a gigantic influence. And Iggy was well aware of these bands. And during that run at Max's, Iggy made a point to go out and see the Dolls. Because that was also the cool thing about Iggy is that Iggy would go out and see these bands that were obviously influenced by what he was doing, and he would feel like a sense of pride. It wasn't jealousy or these guys are stealing my act or anything like that. It was like, oh, shit, dude. Like, look what I did. This is fucking great. Yeah, he went to the show, and this was like the day after he was bandaged and stitched up. Yeah, but during that show, Iggy was so fucked up that he ran into a glass door. Cutting himself up even further, and he just fell to the ground bleeding, and everyone just sort of laughed and stepped over him, because even though Iggy Pop the musician was highly respected, Iggy Pop the person was quickly turning into a bad joke. About the only person who took pity on Iggy was his girlfriend, New York rock scene mainstay, B.B. Buell, who lived Tyler's mom. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, she was then the girlfriend of Mark David Chapman's favorite musician, (laughs) Todd Rundgren. played that song on a playlist for my birthday one year. Yeah, I did. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Todd Rundgren, he's such a surprising member of that scene. Because uh, Todd Rundgren's mentioned in all of the punk histories. He's mentioned in Please Kill Me a ton of times. Like, Todd Rundgren was just a part of the scene, even though, like... I, and I fucking love Todd Rundgren. Like, that Breathless is a fucking great album. But... You just don't put that song together with trash. <laughs> <laughs> While Todd was off on tour, B.B. and Iggy spent an entire summer having what was the first of B.B.'s many affairs, uh, which this was a highly risky move for Iggy because Rundgren um, was Actually, like, he was a powerful figure in the music industry. Like, Breathless was a huge hit, and Rundgren knew fucking everybody. And Iggy was quickly running out of friends. Todd and BB, they had, like, a very open relationship, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, They kind of had their own lives. They didn't really flaunt it, because they were living together, so they couldn't bring anybody home, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Except that when Iggy was passed out, and she was, like, trying to tend to his wounds at night, she did mention where... they lived. Yeah. Horatio Street, 51 Horatio Street. And for some reason, <laughs> Iggy shows up at her door. <laughs> How he remembered that address, just, it's just, it's amazing. 
And you know, the thing is about Iggy Pop, he is a lot fucking smarter than people give him credit for. He is very, very smart. Iggy. I know I make fun of him a lot, but he is very smart. <laughs> like, he is, uh, Iggy Pop is a brilliant man. And I think that a lot of times Iggy Pop was doing as many drugs as he wanted to do. I think he knew what he was doing and he was trying to test the limits. He was trying to see how far he could go. Uh, and I think a lot of his shit behavior uh, was not him losing control. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to see what he could get away with. Uh, and I think this little incident tells you a lot about that, that he was conscious. He knew what the fuck was going on when all this happened. And he was going to go stay at Todd Rundgren's apartment <laughs> while he was out of town. Yep, while Todd was on tour. And the whole thing came to a head when Iggy fell asleep in the bathtub at BB and Todd's place after giving all of BB's dogs Valium. Now, the dogs are okay. He didn't hurt the dogs. And Danny Fields, of course, came to the rescue one more time, had all the water damage repaired, but... Bibi's patience was wearing thin. Well, to be fair, though, Iggy did say, I'm a dog lover. <laughs> I know a lot about animals. <laughs> They'll be fine. <laughs> and as you said, they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. Well, Iggy Pop's more of a bird man than he is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and a rabbit man. And a rabbit man. Loves rabbits. Loves birds. Uh, please, again. And iguanas. And iguanas, of course. <laughs> please, again, go follow Biggie Pop. You will not regret it man he does know a lot about animals <laughs> well bb did let iggy hang around for a little bit more and she even went to a studio show in dc but that all ended in disaster after one of bb's friends gave iggy what he thought was cocaine but was actually straight pcp elephant tranquilizers <laughs> Wow. Yeah, they were playing at the Kennedy Center. Oh, we played the Kennedy Center. I remember when you guys did. Yeah, I almost shit myself with nervousness. Oh, well, you should have really shit yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and Iggy arrived with uh, Bibi and her friend Cindy Lang. Mm -hmm. And this is where it all comes down because of Cindy Lang. <laughs> <laughs> she was the one who brought the PCP. And BB like already knew about the PCP because she tried it once before and she knew it was just, you know, bad news. Yeah. And then BB runs over to James Williamson's hotel room mm -hmm. and she's knocking on the door frantically and she tells him, hey, uh, Iggy's over there with my friend Cindy and uh, she brought out some PCP and he's like, why did you leave him alone? <laughs> And they run over all the way back. And the whole time she was gone, and by the time they got back, he had already snorted like six lines of PCP. Whoa. And he collapsed within seconds. Yeah. He was just like, they had to like, you slap him awake. They had to do, you know, that airplane like movie, like the line <laughs> where they had to like, just, just like get him out of hysterics. Yeah. He was mumbling to himself. And then, like, the, the show promoter, he, like, goes into the green room and is like, hey, guys, uh, uh, you know, it's been an hour now. Everyone's been waiting for you guys to play. And then he looks down and he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and Iggy Pop is, like, barely conscious. Uh, they're trying to give him water to drink. And then after a little while, Iggy's like, I can sing, man. I can sing. I can do this. The band goes out. They start playing the opening riffs of Raw Power. Nice. And it's like they're going on and playing and playing for 15 minutes opening riffs and then eventually eventually your band manager Chris he picks up Iggy and dumps him on the stage 
And Iggy kind of like grabs the microphone and just starts singing half speed <laughs> and just mumbling around like he he just didn't know what to do he tried and this is the best part he jumped into the audience to do his regular thing that he does mm-hmm. trying and, to kickstart it yeah. exactly and then he realized like i gotta get back to the stage and he kept just like trying to hop back up but he just couldn't <laughs> make it and then and then the band were horrified because they saw like this huge gash on his chest this is this huge wound oh it's gigantic and there was like flesh hanging out <laughs> And so the road manager runs up to him, gets a little bit closer, and he just starts laughing hysterically because someone smashed a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on his (laughs) chest. Oh, PCP. (laughs) (laughs) PBJ. Well, the Stooges also never stopped being bad influences. They eventually made their way back to L.A. where they introduced heroin to a member of the New York Dolls who would eventually die as a consequence of his addiction at the age of 38, Johnny Thunders. Man, I was so happy when I first discovered that song was a cover and not just a bad track on the spaghetti incident. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Duff McKagan, boy, he really does try. He tries. (laughs) Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Well, Iggy was also get more pitiful as well. There's actually an urban legend that right around the release of Raw Power, Iggy would stand underneath the billboard promoting the album that was on the Sunset Strip and point to his own picture while begging for drugs. I bet it worked. <laughs> yeah, of course it <laughs> We don't know if it's true or not. It might just be an it's urban me. legend. It's me. It's <laughs> me. And people weren't really coming out to Stooges shows either. I mean, word was getting around that a Stooges show might be brilliant, but most of the time was just an absolute fucking mess. And sometimes they might not even come on stage. About the only place that people would still come out and support the Stooges was Detroit. Oh, yeah. They played in the Michigan Palace. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a pretty good show. And then <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the show, the the entire audience just like rushed on the stage. But it was kind of cool though. Yeah, like a hometown thing. Exactly. It was a very cool thing. And then Iggy did another very cool thing <laughs> by inviting the entire audience back to his hotel room. <laughs> just everyone that's just piling. No, no milk and cookies. <laughs> you'll see. Oh, you'll see. You'll see what's going to happen. And as their close friends tell it, uh, Michael Tipton and Natalie Schlossman, they went over to uh, Ron's hotel room because he called them up saying, like, let's hang out. So they open up the door and there's Ron with uh, Scott Thurston and they're naked <laughs> and they're having at it with some other woman and they're like yeah, yeah just come later uh, <laughs> and then the next morning Iggy's like I want breakfast so he calls them up he calls up his friends Natalie and Michael he's like hey come get me for breakfast and they're like alright and then sometime later they go all the way down there they open the door and they see about 20 or so people all naked having an orgy <laughs> like full-on orgy straight up or wow yeah yeah like he they even said like there was a couple like banging against like the the bathroom glass door so hard that they thought it was gonna shatter <laughs> and iggy's sitting there with a shirt on no pants uh-huh. and some woman holding onto his leg and he just looks at him and says uh i i changed my mind <laughs> i'm not coming to breakfast <laughs> But then he changed his mind again and had breakfast. (laughs) Well, as it went for a lot of musicians in the early 70s, some of them just started dying. Zeke Zetner, the bassist who had briefly replaced Dave Alexander, died of a heroin overdose. It was even rumored that Iggy was negotiating a fee to kill himself on stage. But the other Stooges said, hey, you don't really need to worry about it. He doesn't have the energy to do that. (laughs) (laughs) He can't even show up. (laughs) But still, the rumor gained enough steam where people showed up expecting Iggy to kill himself on stage. People actually showed up expecting it, which I don't know, that might say something about the gullibility of the people in the 1970s, but it might also tell you a little bit about just how unhinged Iggy had become. But instead of seeing an onstage suicide, they found a drug-addled Iggy mumbling through song after song, announcing every number as heavy liquid. (laughs) (laughs) And this next one's really close to my heart. Is it? Yeah, it's heavy liquid. (laughs) 
And they were actually, Columbia, they were thinking about releasing a live album from the Stooges, and this was the show that they were recording to see if maybe it was good enough to release. Uh, It fucking wasn't. It was awful. And soon after that, Columbia dropped the band. And after that, the Stooges wouldn't make it more than a few months. A four-night run at Bimbo's in San Francisco got only a few dozen fans, and although it was rumored that Iggy got blown in the crowd during the show, Iggy said it didn't happen because he can't get hard when he plays. Then how come he was yelling, somebody's sucking my dick? (laughs) (laughs) What we do have from that show is either a pre- or post-show interview with one of Dick Clark's goons about Iggy's quote-unquote decadence. When you go on stage, you wear a lot of makeup, you wear some costumes with a lot of people. I don't wear a lot of makeup. I don't wear, okay, I wear makeup. I wear makeup in, in the street, too, you know. Yeah, okay, I wear, what else? I like, I like this. Okay, thing. all of those things. I mean, but, and people associate that with a kind of decadence. Now, given that kind of thing, uh, you know, how do you respond to that? I mean, do you think that that's a, a decadent kind of, I can, you know, I consider it uh, advanced, you know, just advanced, you know, it's just, um, you know. People are going to be doing this in a couple of years? Decadence is decomposition, you know, I'm not, I'm not decomposing, am I? You know, I'm all here, you know, you know. No, I know what you mean, you know. Um, what about moral decadence? I don't have any morals. Well, you know what? He did get his revenge back because later in the 90s, he put on a ton of makeup to be featured in an episode of Deep Space Nine. (laughs) (laughs) So how is that? You're a gigantic Deep Space Nine fan. Mm. I'm going through Deep Space Nine right now. I know I've got like four more seasons before Iggy and the Dominion come. How is Iggy in that episode? He's a great Dominion guy. Oh, that's cool. Well, he's one of the bad guys. Oh, of course. Yeah. But like that was the one where the Ferengi's mom uh, she she gets kidnapped and it, you know they have to like uh, do some negotiations and Iggy's like we're here to negotiate <laughs> he did a pretty good job yeah, okay, okay good I mean I, I, he's not a bad actor like, no, I no. mean, his scene in uh, Coffee and Cigarettes with Tom Waits is my favorite of the entire uh, the entire movie. It's I fucking great. I don't think they even knew the cameras were rolling. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was the one that has the lines like great thing about quitting cigarettes that you can have one. You could just have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, back in the seventies when the Stooges were at their end, the Midwest shows weren't going much better either. No, especially since, like, one of the shows he tried to, like, stage dive and, like, the audience just parted ways. Yeah. (laughs) And he did it twice in one night. (laughs) (laughs) But the worst one, I have to say, was uh, February 4th, 1972. That was uh, at the Rock and Roll Farm. They were uh, booked at a small club in Wayne, Michigan. And before the show started, it was obvious that it wasn't a Stooges show, but rather more like a biker bar. And it was like a bar show. Yeah, they were just a bar band. Exactly. Ugh. Like, th- there were plenty of audience there to go see the Stooges. Yeah. But there were a couple dozen bikers, and they were like heavy set, bearded, 30 something men with uh, a logo of scorpions on their back, which means they were from the Scorpion Bike Gang. Not the band. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so they, they were in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these heavy set, bearded guys just standing there, these rough, tough guys, yeah. are watching Iggy on stage. 
wearing a leotard and ballet slippers. <sighs> and a uh, floppy hat and flowers. <sighs> while he's dancing around. Yeah. And the show's going okay until some eggs get pelted at Iggy. Uh, he gets hit with eggs. What are the bikers doing running around with eggs? There was just one guy with a carton of eggs. I thought the <laughs> same thing. That takes a lot of prep, you know? <laughs> and so Iggy's like, stop, 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 stop the show. He stops the show. He goes into the audience, kind of like, who fucking threw that? He goes, he finds the guy who had the egg carton. He goes up to him and he's about to like just unleash whatever fury he has. And he gets punched straight between the eyes and knocked out. Uh. Yeah. And as Iggy tells it, the guy couldn't knock me out, man. <laughs> And then Iggy did what he had to do, which is get up back on stage and sing Louie Louie <laughs> while the cops were closing in. <laughs> well, Iggy was screaming at the scorpions. Uh, and this was before he got punched. Uh, and while they were throwing beer bottles and ice cubes at him, he yelled, you can throw every goddamn thing in the world and your girlfriend will still love me, you jealous cocksuckers. <laughs> 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 and the crazy thing is like at the end of the night he had to be like kind of like he had to kind of like sneak out yeah uh his girlfriend at the time snuck him out took him to her house in the suburbs where her parents live he slept over and the next morning he had to walk down the stairs for tea and breakfast meeting his his girlfriend's mom and dad wearing a leotard <laughs> and ballet slippers Woof. <laughs> That's got to be rough. Yeah. Yeah, it's always rough when you're still wearing the show makeup from the night before. Back when I was playing shows and I used to wear uh, skull face paint for every single show, yeah, waking up and looking at your pillow that's covered in fake blood and (laughs) black and white grease paint, you don't feel good about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You got a new pillow. (laughs) That just means you were too fucked up to take a shower when you got home. Oh. Yeah. But fittingly, the Stooges' last show was in Detroit proper. And the last half of that set was recorded and released three years later as the live album Metallic K.O. Up your ass. Can't hate me. I don't even care about you. 
he was trying to feed on that hate. Remember when he first started? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, remember when the cream wasn't going to show up <laughs> in 1969? Yeah. And he was just taking that all in. And that was a show, that was a show where people threw everything at him. Yeah. Because every, people showed up for the show, not just because of Iggy or to see the band exactly, but because just earlier before, he was on a Detroit radio show kind of taunting the Scorpions and telling him, hey, man, hey, you motherfucker. You feel, you think you're real big now? Why do you come to our show at the Michigan Palace on Saturday night? And so they enlisted God's Children Gang mm-hmm. to come over, just, you know, just in case, you know, just a little bit of muscle. Yeah. But that show, like, everything was thrown at Iggy so much. Like, beer bottles, uh, even expensive equipment. Yeah. And uh, the Scorpions didn't even show up. They didn't show. <laughs> everything was thrown at them. It, it got to the point where the rest of the band is like, hey, Iggy, can you just not stand in front of me? Because I don't want to get hit. <laughs> And after the show was over, I mean, the indignities just kept fucking coming. Wayne Kramer, formerly of the MC5, and if you remember from the last episode, Iggy's former partner in the heroin business, Wayne Kramer showed up, pulled a gun on Iggy, and said, hey, pretty good show, man. Give me the money you owe me right now. (laughs) And he robbed Iggy right there on the spot. <laughs> Robbed, got paid back. You know. If it's by gunpoint, it's robbery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, after that show, Iggy hadn't quite given up on the Stooges, but everyone knew it's fucking done. James Williamson had to get clean because he'd gotten busted for heroin possession pretty soon after that show, which meant no more hanging out with Iggy. And people were still trying to set Iggy up with other musicians. He did have a short-lived collaboration with Ray Manzarek, formerly the keyboardist for The Doors, but Iggy kept showing up to rehearsals two hours late and naked. Or when Ray had to bail Iggy out (laughs) because he was arrested wearing a green dress because he was, uh, I think, intoxicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ray goes, "Uh, Iggy, is is that a woman's dress? And Iggy was like, oh, I beg to differ. It's a man's dress. (laughs) (laughs) And And Iggy just kept getting more and more pitiful. In order to score drugs, he would fake injuries or muggings. Uh, and would show up at his friends' houses uh, wearing a yellow mini dress with his dick hanging out to make himself look even more pitiful. It worked. It worked. But sometimes he would actually just get mugged <laughs> because he's fucking wandering around these horrible neighborhoods in Los Angeles and people just beat the shit out of him and take his money. Eventually, Iggy was picked up in L.A. after the cops found him drooling in a diner in the middle of a Quaalude trip. And this was after the cops had already picked him up for impersonating a woman, which was a crime in many states up until fairly recently. Within the last, like, 20, 30 years, it was still a crime to wear a dress if you were a guy in really? a lot of states in the United States. Yeah. I mean, this is, what, 1975? In California, for fuck's sake. And he got arrested for that. But still, the cops gave Iggy a choice. Prison or the psych ward? Naturally, Iggy chose the psych ward. And while he was cleaning up, he was visited by none other than David Bowie, who was dealing with some pretty massive drug problems of his own by this point. I think David's opening line to Iggy when he visited him was, you want some blow? <laughs> That's not a joke. That's true. He that, that really, was, that was op- he's, he's generous enough to offer. <laughs> and by that point, David Bowie was a huge star because no one was allowed 
to see Iggy while he was in the psych ward, but David Bowie just showed up, and the staff was so starstruck, like, oh my god, Ziggy Stardust is here. <laughs> but they just let him in, and they didn't pat him down for drugs. <laughs> and so David Bowie just brought in Coke. It's in his cane. <laughs> <laughs> and then another death came. On February 10th, 1975, Dave Alexander, original bassist for the Stooges, died from pancreatitis related to his extreme alcoholism at the age of 27. That was really sad because he had been drinking since he was 12 years old. He'd been drinking pretty much his entire life, and he was trying to, like, get turn things around. He was playing the stock market. He was like, no, I got this whole new life. And he just sadly just passed away. A lot of people call it very sudden. Yeah. And he was just cremated almost immediately. Yeah. And with the Ashton brothers completely out of the picture as well, Iggy had no one else to turn to but David Bowie. Although that was not by any stretch of the imagination a bad option. No. <laughs> like, oh man, I got to go crawling back to David Bowie. He was hesitant at first, but he eventually made the right call. Yeah. But, as I said, Bowie was fucked up in his own right. Only difference was, Bowie had stayed away from the heroin. As we all know, David's drug of choice during the 70s was... Milk and peppers? (laughs) That and cocaine. Oh, right. Yeah. And and milk and red peppers, specifically. (laughs) And cigarettes. Yeah. Not even he knows why he did that. You know? Like, because <laughs> that is true. Like, David Bowie, during this time period, he only drank milk. He only ate red peppers, uh, smoked cigarettes constantly, and did a ton of cocaine. And when someone asked him, like, why did you just, why did you only consume peppers and milk? And he just said, oh. I like pickles. <laughs> he just didn't, he had no fucking clue. Now, even though Bowie was losing his mind, he'd still been highly productive. And since Iggy and Bowie had last worked together, Bowie had done Aladdin Sane, pinups, and most notably, Diamond Dogs. song could be about anybody (laughs) that's why it's one of bowie's biggest hits it's fucking great i mean even that it's one of those songs that even though it's a gigantic hit and everybody knows rebel rebel it's still a 
fantastic song. Yeah. Well, anybody who's listened to the last podcast on the left episode about Bowie and the occult that we recorded right after Bowie died, you know that this was the time in Bowie's life when his magical journeys into the world of identity and the Kabbalah started spinning out of control. Although it's safe to say, it's probably more like cocaine <laughs> than the magic. <laughs> it was given Bowie a hard time. Because having personally dabbled in both... I would say the cocaine was worse for me than the chaos magic was. For me, it was a milk and pepper. (laughs) (laughs) Bowie was doing so much coke that he believed Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin's guitarist, was actually a powerful warlock hell-bent on destroying him, and that witches were trying to surreptitiously collect Bowie semen to make a Bowie homunculus. Actually, that one is true. (laughs) Who does the research here? (laughs) But while Bowie was losing his mind in his own right, Iggy was sleeping in the garage of a Quaalude dealer in L.A. on a mattress that Iggy had stolen from a thrift store. This was what? Five years after they played the Cincinnati Pop Festival, televised to the entire fucking country, a huge crowd reduced to sleeping on a mattress in a garage, a stolen mattress in a drug dealer's garage. The only person willing to help out Iggy was a friend of Keith Richards named Freddie Sessler. So Sessler called up Bowie, and it just so happened that Bowie was just starting to come out of his years-long cocaine haze after recording Station to Station in such a state he doesn't even remember it. Station to Station is my favorite Bowie album. He doesn't remember recording it. He was actually quoted as saying that, yes, the album was recorded in Los Angeles, and I know that because someone told me it was. (laughs) (laughs) Like how Matthew Perry doesn't remember three seasons of Friends. It's like the same thing. It's totally the same thing. Exactly the same. (laughs) So... Bowie and Iggy got together in San Diego to talk about collaboration. Bowie wanted to work with Iggy on a solo album, and Bowie had just written a song that he wanted Iggy to record. That song was Sister Midnight. After that, Iggy went out on tour with David Bowie to learn discipline. He called it rock and roll boot camp. (laughs) Because Bowie was actually very regimented during this time. It's, you know, it's wake up, get on a flight, fly to the next city, eat, do the show, eat again, 
go to sleep. Next day, do the same thing over and over and over again. And Iggy had no choice but to go along with it or be left behind. And this was the beginning of a creative collaboration in which Bowie and Iggy would inspire each other to such an extent that they would both record some of the best music of their entire careers. At the very least, some of my favorite music of their entire careers. And that collaboration began in 1976 with the recording of Iggy Pop's first solo record, The Idiot. Iggy said in an interview in 1976 uh, about uh, the nightlife, he goes, what I enjoy about the nightlife, it's like being in a coffin. (laughs) And everyone seems so dead that it's relaxing for a bit. (laughs) And now I can see that. Yeah, I can totally see that, especially after hearing nightclubbing. So in the summer of 1976, Bowie and Iggy hold up in a studio outside of Paris. And while the album, definitely far more in line with Bowie's style than Iggy's, It was once again, I mean, it was fucking ahead of its time, just like the Stooges' first three records were. The Idiot is a post-punk album released in 1977, just when punk was starting to take off in America and the UK. It's a weird-as-fuck, uncomfortable, heavily electronic-for-the-time avant-garde album that sounded like nothing else. And I think that's my favorite thing about The Idiot, how fucking uncomfortable it is. And the fact that, like, a lot of people are expecting something more raw power, more Stooges-esque. Yeah. And Iggy just, just kind of, he totally surprised everybody. Yeah, that's the amazing, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's an avant-garde record. It's fucking weird. Let's <laughs> listen to another track. Okay. Sing you a lullaby. We walk 
hitching a ride. <laughs> it sounds like that Green Day song. Yeah, I think the Green Day song sounds like Baby. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> I do love that song, though. Yeah, yeah, actually, I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just love, I love music that makes me feel weird. And the idiot just from beginning to end just fucking makes me feel weird. And at the end of this episode, we will listen to my favorite song from The Idiot. And pretty soon after The Idiot was recorded, Bowie and Iggy went back to France and brought along the legendary Brian Eno and recorded one of Bowie's best and strangest albums, Low. Even though Brian Eno was convinced the chateau in France was haunted by the composer Chopin, Iggy kept everyone entertained during the recording of Lowe by doing long comedic monologues about the worst days of the Stooges. <laughs> <coughs> like, like, like what? Like uh, one time uh, the gorilla jumped on stage and <laughs> he was about to attack me and then it turned out it was Elton John. <laughs> that story's true. That is that was a true story. Yeah, he was a very he was such a Lenny Bruce about it. <laughs> Smoking a cigarette. Yeah, what was the story behind that one? It it was exactly that. <laughs> Elton John goes backstage and he uh, puts on this gorilla costume and people around him was like, "What are you doing?" Like he's like, "Oh, I, I think it'd be cool if I jump on stage with the Stooges, you know, while they're playing." And they're like, "Okay, we'll let the Stooges know. We'll let Iggy know." And he's like, "No, no, shh." <laughs> Don't tell him. Which was a bad idea because Iggy was so stoned. Like, he was so messed up already yeah. that a doctor had to inject, like, speed into him. Yeah, you... Don't sneak up on a junk. You don't surprise a junkie. We've learned that before. <laughs> no, I've definitely got because I know what look Iggy Pop gave Elton John. Like I think everybody's had that look for like a junkie looks at you and they're trying to decide whether you're a threat or not, and they're trying to decide whether or not to attack you. And finally, like, <laughs> like didn't Elton John just like take off the gorilla mask and go like whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> at the right moment? There is a picture if you can find it online. It is, it is amazing. It is a picture of uh, Elton John in his gorilla suit just getting on stage. Iggy Pop has not noticed yet, but James Williamson has this look of horror. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, Metallic KO, the live album that documented the last Stooges show, was released to a world that finally got it. The UK especially loved the album, and Metallic KO sold 100,000 copies. And that's because Michael Tipton, remember his their friend, mm-hmm. recorded that show at the Michigan Palace. And Nick Kent, who uh, we all know is a r- famous rock journalist, got the tape from James Williamson. And then Mark Zametti released it as a 39-minute album in September of uh, 1976. So it was like a saving grace for them. It really was. I mean, it was the Stooges' legacy. Like it was where finally it's like, no, people need to hear the Stooges. They need to hear this shit. They need to hear the show. And Metallica's fucking great. I mean, it is still like every other Stooges live album. Like the sound quality isn't fantastic, uh, but it is about. It's about as raw of an album as you can fucking get out there. The things were going so well for Iggy that for the first time in his life, he was able to rent an apartment under his own name. And that apartment was in Berlin. There, Iggy and Bowie would record Iggy's second solo album, the incomparable Lust for Life. There goes Ewan McGregor now. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that was for a lot of the people in our generation. That was the first Iggy Pop song that we heard. Yeah. You know, from the Train Spotting soundtrack. You know, that was how we got introduced to a lot of. I mean, I know it's also how I got introduced into Lou Reed because uh, Perfect Day was on that record. That's how I did too. Yeah. And I remember trying to buy like a, a Lou Reed record. Mm-hmm. I, I, I even drove all the way to New York from like Philadelphia 
to go because that was where the cool place was, Bleecker Street. <laughs> oh yeah. And oh, I, did you go to Bleecker Bob's? I yes, I did. Nice. Yes, I did. <laughs> I drove. I was like seventeen. I drove all the way there. I'm going through like record store by record store every single block, and I like asked the clerk. I'm like, hey, uh, uh, did you got any Lou Reed? I, I just wanted to seem cool. Yeah. I didn't know anything about Lou Reed. Yeah, of I, course. I didn't nothing. And you knew you liked that song, and that's enough. Yeah, exactly. And then the clerk's like, "Yeah, I don't know." Like, uh, I and I told him like, "I can't find it under the R's." Uh-huh. He's like, "Well, just you know, check with the uh, uh, the Velvet Underground." And I was like, "But why?" <laughs> uh, did he tell you why? I found out. Yeah. <laughs> well, lust for life, and you might, and you know, you might also know lust for life. I mean, it's it's a song in commercials now. Unfortunately, or fortunately. I mean, fuck. Keep Ziggy Pop alive. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and he uh, defended that because he sold it to uh, uh, Caribbean Cruises. <laughs> he sold it to a cruise line. <laughs> There's just a family of four on one of those tidal waves. And then you could hear, I've had it in my ear before. <laughs> well, he defended it. He said, like, yeah, you know, for one, you know, it introduces the song to, you know, a new generation. Uh, and two, I made a lot of money. He's like, it's it's whatever. He's like, T- judge me however you want, but more people heard the song. He's like, not a lot of people got to hear it when it came out, but they get, they get to hear it now. And I think Lust for Life has been on the UK charts three times uh, because when Trainspotting came out, like Iggy Pop the, filmed a, a video for it. Um, that was a fucking huge hit in the yeah. UK. But the album itself was recorded at the famous Hansa Studios, so close to the Berlin Wall that the guard and the watchtower could hear the sound engineer mixing the tracks from the studio's window. And we know a lot about Hansa Studios. We got to go there. <laughs> we went there this year. We yeah. went when we went to Berlin, we went there and we got to tour the Hansa Studios. It was so cool it was fucking amazing because it wasn't just lust for life that was recorded there like bowie also recorded heroes there like we get to stand in the room where bowie recorded the vocals to heroes unfortunately we didn't get to go into the actual studio where they recorded uh lust for life but it was so fucking cool to be there it was so cool to see it and the day that we were there the sound engineer who worked on Lust for Life, the one who worked on Heroes, uh, the one who uh, helped mix uh, The Idiot with Tony Visconti, uh, he was there. We got to talk to him. Very nice older gentleman. So nice. I would say the tour guide could have done with a little bit less Depeche Mode. It was a lot of Depeche Mode. <laughs> it was so funny because we were, were about to start the tour and the tour guide asked like, do we have any uh, Depeche Mode fans here? Any Depeche Mode fans? And like one, there was what, maybe 30 of us? Yeah. And one woman like raised her hand reluctantly like to <laughs> kind of say like, kind of, like a violator's all right (laughs) and this fucking dude spent so much time talking about Depeche Mode you know and and I get it like Depeche Mode's fine and everything but we're sitting at the end of the tour we're sitting in the room where the idiot was mixed we're sitting in the building where Lust for Life was recorded and he decides to play us a sample of Depeche Mode Recording a firecracker going off in a parking lot in England. 
Not even in the same country. And it was. <laughs> there was one Depeche Mode fan, and at the end of the tour, there were none. <laughs> And we're just, and then it finally goes like, oh yeah, I guess maybe here at the end we'll play some idiot, you know? I guess we'll play some Iggy. Why not? Like, let's let's play a little bit of Iggy. I'm like, you know, you should be talking about Iggy the whole fucking time. Well, Iggy and Bowie, of course. One interesting thing I did learn when we were doing the tour, though, was that in the room that we we got to go into, where they played in, uh, the, the hall by the wall is what they call it. Exactly. Uh, there was a camera there and that connected all the way down the hall into another room and that was the control room yeah because they couldn't see each other so they had to use a camera yeah most of the time in a recording studio you've got uh the record actual room where they record and then there's a glass uh and, and then there's like you know a glass window where the engineer can look and speak with the artists but in the hall by the wall like this was uh, I can't remember what it was before it was a recording studio because this building back when they were recording everything around it was completely bombed out when you go there now it's extremely nice it's a very nice neighborhood it's right by Potsdamer Platz Uh, it's extremely nice and it was so fucking cool to be in there and it was so fucking cool to see it is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So this entire album, which is arguably Iggy Pop's best solo record, and definitely more Iggy style than The Idiot, was written, recorded, and mixed in just eight days because Iggy and Bowie kept trying to outdo each other. I mean, they were bosom buddies for years yeah. at this time, especially in Berlin. Like Iggy was saying like he was living on coke, hash, red wine, beer, and sausages. <laughs> just like when we were in Berlin. Remember this year we were living on beer and sausages that's it because that's what you live on in berlin it's fantastic and he had a deal with rca he had a twenty-five thousand dollar advance i mean things were finally looking up when we went and took the tour at hansa the sound engineer as we said who oversaw the entire recording actually told us how he got the vocal tone for possibly the best song on the record the passenger according to the engineer he did nothing more complicated than plug a microphone into a guitar amp, and the distorted result gives the song just that extra dirty little layer it needed to become an absolute classic. Yeah. 
But the real secret sauce in this album is David Bowie's backing vocals, which are used especially well on the chorus to the surprisingly self-aware song, Some Weird Sin, co-written by David Bowie and Iggy Pop. such a David Bowie Iggy Pop baby. Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, in every way. And I'm also just now realizing they used a lot of cowbell on that record. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, you got to have more I'm cowbell. Not, I'm, not you more cowbell. I'm not asking Wait, you to. I'm not asking you to. I respected your original decision. <laughs> <laughs> now, the album ended up being Iggy's biggest hit in the UK. And as far as the United States release went, the album also sold out of its first pressing almost immediately. But, again, the Iggy pop luck was at work. See, the problem with the United States release was that it happened to coincide with the death of Elvis. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care And I am just a devil with love to spare So Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas How I Now what that meant was that there were a lot of people who wanted to buy Elvis records and unfortunately both Iggy and Elvis were on RCA. What that meant was that all of RCA's vinyl pressing plants were focused solely on pressing Elvis's back catalog, which completely killed Lust for Life's momentum. People wanted the record, it just wasn't out there. But Iggy kinda sorta took it in stride, telling a music journalist during an interview that he was the new Elvis before pissing in a trash can. <laughs> I'm gonna avoid toilets for a while. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> but Iggy Pop, unfortunately, was a man of cycles. See, after the release of Lust for Life, Iggy locked himself in a room with a pile of cocaine and stared at the album cover for hours on end. Now, I love the album cover because, to me, it's fucking creepy. I mean, it's just a smiling Iggy Pop looking like he's about to snap at any second. But Iggy saw it as a betrayal of the persona he'd spent years developing. The Iggy on the Lust for Life sleeve looked to Iggy like a guy anyone would want to hang out with. <laughs> that's not true by any stretch. <laughs> but that's what Iggy perceived. That's how Iggy Pop saw that album cover. And with the loss of confidence came the return of cocaine. And what followed was years upon years of drug abuse and albums that ran from mediocre to just plain boring. I mean, none of these albums are bad, 
per se. You know, like Iggy Pop solo records. Like that's some like Zombie Birdhouse is okay, but Soldier is just fucking boring. Like there's just not much to it. And if you're interested in the story of Iggy's solo career throughout the late '70s and the '80s and the early '90s, please go read "Open Up and Bleed." By Paul Tranka because the part that covers Iggy's solo career during the 80s and 90s that was my favorite part of the book it's fascinating it's fucking great it's an amazing story and it's a great story of redemption as well he looked at his collection of all his records of his CDs and he made two piles the good ones and the bad ones and then he felt bad when the bad ones were a lot higher than the good ones <laughs> yeah yeah I mean and like I said, I, I'm not super into Iggy's music from that time, just like I'm not super into Bowie's 80s stuff. You know, although also like Bowie, the 80s gave Iggy Pop one of his biggest hits that was very much of the time. I'm a real wild one, wild one, wild one, wild one. Wild one. Iggy Pop, king of the movie trailer soundtrack. And then Billy Idol goes, hmm, I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) See, up until then, Iggy Pop had pretty much been surviving on royalties from David Bowie because David Bowie would throw an Iggy Pop song on a record every once in a while. And China Girl. I love China Girl. China Girl, that's an Iggy Pop song. That was on The Idiot. Uh, And when David Bowie recorded that, uh, shit, you know, money just came flowing in for Iggy Pop. And that's and some people say that, you know, Iggy didn't like Bowie recording his songs. That's fucking bullshit. That's bullshit. <laughs> that's absolute bullshit. Iggy loved it. Oh, I hate all this money and all these royalties <laughs> coming to me. Oh, God, let it stop. Not, but not too long after Real Wild Child, Iggy hit gold again with the song Candy from the album Brick by Brick. Although, when it comes to that album... I prefer the other single, Butt Town. It's only a matter of time. <laughs> the cops are well groomed with muscle physiques in Butt Town. Their tan uniforms are tailored and chic in Butt Town. And a young black male who walks down the street is going to get stopped. Town USA. <laughs> That's where Marcus lives. <laughs> you know, I gotta say honestly, I think that's the first Iggy Pop song I ever heard. 
Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Beavis and Butthead, yeah, did Butt Town. So I think <laughs> I don't rem- necessarily remember, like, because it's not a good song. Like at all, like <laughs> it's terrible song. It's fun. Uh, it's fun, but it's fun. You know, it's, it's butt town. Everyone loves butt town. <laughs> it's just fun to say butt town. But as far as candy went, the duet with Kate Pearson of the B52s was by far Iggy's biggest hit, earning him his first and only top forty hit in America. That is so much better than when he did a cover of Ray of Light at when Madonna was inducted to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> he did? Yeah. Oh, man. And it's on YouTube. <laughs> he tries, though. Yeah, you know what? He always tries. He always tries. He takes risks. Yeah. You know, they don't, I respect that. Yeah, I respect that, too. They don't always work out, but you know what? He tries. And, you know, it was only a matter of time before the Stooges reunited. And in 2003, the original lineup came back big with Minutemen bassist, punk legend, and all-around good dude, Mike Watt. Mike Watt replacing Dave Alexander on the bass. I love Mike Watt. Yeah. Yeah, he stayed at my house once in college. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, when when he was touring uh, the second man's middle stand. Yeah, he slept on my couch, and uh, the keyboardist in his band, uh, we sat in my kitchen all night uh, talking about music. Except he did it wearing only uh, bikini briefs. Oh, and then you were wearing the boots. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Stooges did end up releasing a couple of albums, although isn't really any need to get into those too deep. I mean, pretty much all you need to know about those albums, which even Iggy Pop doesn't like, is that track three of their comeback album is mostly about Iggy Pop going to the ATM and thinking that most rock stars these days are, quote, tricky dickheads. <laughs> Song's called ATM. It's, it's bad. Titled ATM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the cool thing about the reunion is that the Ashton brothers finally got their day in the sun. I mean, Iggy, he'd been getting praised as the godfather of punk for decades, but the Ashtons had barely gotten a mention, even though they were just as important. The reunited Stooges even got to play one of the big stages at Coachella, back before Coachella was the absolutely awful Instagram fashion mess that it is now, where it's just, I don't know, at Coachella, it's a fucking circle jerk showcase for pop stars like Beyonce and Ariana whoa, Grande. Whoa, 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 How dare you leave out the weekend? <laughs> I mean, just to give you an example of how great that lineup was in 2003, and I know we're showing our fucking age here, but still, I mean, this lineup. Beastie Boys, Headline and Saturday Night. You also had Blur, Queens of the Stone Age, Primal Scream, Interpol, Cafe Tacuba. Cafe Tacuba! <laughs> we went and saw them a few uh, last year. They were fucking amazing. You had Eamon Tobin, Badly Drawn Boy, The Rapture, Stereo Total, The White Stripes, Tortoise, Sonic fucking Youth. All of those bands. They're also called Sonic Youth. <laughs> <laughs> All those bands plus the Stooges in one fucking weekend. It was fucking amazing. I would have loved to have gone to that. 
But just a few years after that comeback show, and less than a year after the release of the comeback album, Ron Ashton died of a heart attack at the age of 60. And to replace him, the Stooges brought back who else but James Williamson. James Williamson probably has one of the most interesting epilogues in all of the Stooges' careers. Uh, he dropped out of the music business and had, in the intervening years, become vice president of Sony Electronics. It worked out for him. It worked out fucking great. But then, in 2014, Scott Ashton died as well, also of a heart attack at the age of 64. He considered the Stooges his uh, retirement lark. Oh. But with that, with only Iggy and James Williamson left, Stooges were done forever. But Iggy Pop has never stopped releasing music. And in 2016, he had a bit of a comeback with the album Post-Pop Depression, co-written by Josh Holm of Queens of the Stone Age. Poetically, though, while the album was nominated for a Grammy, Iggy lost to David Bowie's last album, Black Star. Yeah, but I bet it swept the Iggy's. (laughs) Did it not? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? (laughs) You're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Let's, you know, let's listen to Black Star just one more time. Let's, you know, you can always listen to Black Star. So let's just listen to a little bit of Black Star. Something happened on the day he died. Spirit rose a meter and stepped aside Somebody else took his place and bravely cried I'm a black star, I'm a black star How many times does an angel fall? How many people lie instead of talking tall? He trod the sacred ground, he cried loud into the crowd Sedatives, boom, 
And while we were researching and writing this series, Iggy Pop, at the age of 72, released his 18th album, free. It just fucking came out of nowhere. And while I haven't had the time to really get into it enough to have a strong opinion, I gotta say, at the very least, I dig the single. About something we all need, all need. Clock's ticking, not giving her room to breathe, to breathe. Love screaming. Love's missing. worries me about free is that at least upon first listen the album totally reminds me of black star but hell who knows i mean we might still have another decade of iggy pop and here's to hoping we will because here's the thing the fucker can still perform live and do it well at least as of a few years ago here's iggy performing lust for life at the royal albert hall in 2016 at the age of 69 Worth a million in prizes. I got a torture film. I drive a GTO. I wear a uniform. A lot of government loans. So even though his new album is, in Iggy's words, a reaction to how goddamn tired he was after touring post-pop depression, we might still have a chance to see Iggy pop one last time. You know, and you know, the Stooges, I don't know. I think the Stooges are always going to be good. I mean, I I think I don't, a lot of music from that time period, from the late 60s, early 70s, it's uh, very dated. Uh, I think the Stooges will be timeless forever. Like the Funhouse sounds like it could have been released fucking yesterday, but that could also be because the Stooges had such a insane effect on rock music that fucking everybody after them had a bit of, had a little piece of the Stooges. Um, 
I fucking love the studios. I love yeah, it so me much. Too. And thank y'all so much for listening to this series, for listening to the yeah. the first series of No Dogs in Space. Yeah, we got through it. Yeah, we got through it. And there's gonna and there's a ton more. We have nine more bands. Uh, I know. Lined I mean, up. we started like this is a whole punk series, and we're starting with like the like before the birth of punk. Yeah, the yeah. fetus of punk. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so much more to go through. There's so much more to go through, and we're gonna come back next week with a band that uh, is definitely not not as popular. Popular. Uh, I know some people may have heard of them. Some people may fucking love them. The band is Suicide. Yeah. Can't fucking wait to get into oh. it. But we'll be back with Suicide. And we're also going to be doing an episode on international punk. We're going to be doing all kinds of cool shit this season. Oh, we're going uh, all over the world for that one. Oh, we're going everywhere. We're going to South. We're going to South America. We're going to fucking Iceland. You know, we're going to Sweden. We're going to Germany. We're going to Poland. We're going to search every nook, every cranny, every asshole to find it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And to take us uh, out on this series, we're going to play uh, what could be considered Iggy's autopsy of the Stooges, recorded way back in 1976. This, from the idiot, is my favorite track off the album, Dum Dum Boys. Goodbye, buddy. What happened to Zeke? He's dead on a Jones, man. How about Dave? Oh, did on alcohol. Oh, what's Rock doing? Oh, he's living with his mother. How about James? He's gone straight.
Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. 